This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Super Bowl 56 is in the books, and now we can turn our attention to the real game of interest, Old Timers Day 1 at City Field. Well, at least the first Mets Old Timers Day since the O.J. Simpson Bronco chase, the summer of 94. Mookie Wilson, Felix Mian, John Matlack, Howard Johnson, Bobby Ojeda, Robin Ventura, Andy Chavez, Cliff Floyd, Ron Swoboda. Those are just some of the more than 40 players scheduled to attend. We got details ahead, not to mention a fun look back at the sepia-toned days of the late, great Tom Seaver, courtesy of Howie Rose. Look at me, giving you a rose on Valentine's Day. I am a hell of a guy. That's in the morning. That's in the morning. Oh, yeah. That's in the morning. Gonna tell you what the Mets are doing while coffee is brewing now. Here's Josh Lewin. Let's do the now. A look at best Mets starting pitchers in the history of ever. That is on the docket today. Uh, number one, of course, will be Seaver and Howie Rose, who just had a birthday over the weekend. He will join me as a decent docent as we walk through the museum of Tom Terrific. But first, Old Timers Day is back. Celebrate. Celebrate good times. Mets used to have these things at Shea back in the day, but they stopped the music after 1994, citing a lack of financial return. I'm happy to report current ownership favors making memories over making money. So, yes, Frank Thomas, who led the expansion Mets with 34 homers 60 years ago, he's on this invite list for the game to be played Saturday, August 27th, before the Mets take on the Rockies. Frank Thomas says he plans on taking a full round of BP. Frank Thomas is 92. Not that Frank Thomas, the one who takes the new Gen X and hits on your wife on those commercials on, on the telly. Uh, Luke Appling took Warren Spahn deep at an old-timers game when Luke Appling was 75. Lead-off home run down the line at RFK Stadium in Washington. So pressure's on the 92-year-old here. We mentioned 40 former Mets have already accepted invites. Did you know that Daniel Murphy is now an old-timer? It's true. It's true. He played in the big leagues just a couple years ago, but as a retired player, come on down. And really, there's no better vehicle for connecting the past to the present than something like this. I just love that it's a chance to bring families together in the stands. Obviously, it'll be a cool reunion on the field, too. But a, a nine-year-old sitting in the stands says, hey, Dad, who, who's that guy? Tell me about that guy. And I love that. Uh, among the Mets coming back, with the Sanford and Son theme song to be played as he walks to the plate, Cliff Floyd. Here's what Cliffy had to say about this capital idea. Oh, I think it's going to be great, man. I really do. Uh, other than the fact that I'm terrified of hurting myself, doing something stupid, uh, it should be fun. <laughs> you know, that, that's always has been in the back of your mind, you know, when you think about these things because... You know, we're a kid at heart, but hell, when when you get to this point in our lives, you got to be careful. So, 
Uh, it's going to be fun to see the fans. It's going to be fun to be back in the city. Uh, you know, obviously everybody hitting me up thinking I'm going deep for some reason. I have no idea why I think I'm doing balls over the fence, but uh, I'm looking definitely looking forward to being around the boys again and uh, putting the uniform on and, you know, having a blast for a couple of days. Now, a little more from Cliff, who certainly has fond memories of playing in New York in general. This is a guy I remember started out in Montreal. I had so many different emotions about playing New York. I think the biggest was to understand, you know, what your what your job was. And then the fans, man, played a big part in um, you putting your big boy pants on and, and being real, being true. Like, you know, you see some of the stuff happening today. You just you just saying to yourself, you shaking your head, going, "No, that's not how you want to start. That's not how, you know you 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 just play the game different in New York." Um, wish we had one more. Wish I was a little bit more healthy. But I think when you look at my four years, I learned a lot about myself playing New York. I really did. Um, it was great. Uh, we had some, you know, big ups, some few downs. Um, but for the most part, it was it was tremendous for me. I, I learned a lot about myself and how I was supposed to go out there and and uh, play the game. And I, I think one thing, you know, as 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 a guy to play for different amount of teams, New York, the fans, they can just it's some some about how they just can feel the weakness, feel that like you know what we 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 know what you're about. Whether you real or fake, they can they can pull that fake out pretty easily. So you come to New York to play, you need to, uh, you know, step your mind up, step your game up. Robin Ventura will be in on this thing as well. Mr. Grand Slam single himself. His memories, of course, just like Cliff Floyd's, are all from not City Field, but from Shea Stadium. It's like when Cliff was just talking about being in New York and you need to be spot on. Uh, they can They can figure out phonies and bad players, false hustle, all that stuff. And I, I just remember walking, when you walk from the locker room to the dugout, there's that hallway. And when you go down the steps, before you make it onto the field, you better be ready. And I'm talking BP. I mean, it's like you better be a Doberman with your ears pinned back and be ready and be prepared and, and be purposeful when, when you go out there. And it just there's just a certain noise that Shea had that other places didn't have. I don't know if it's acoustics, the fan, like you know, it stadiums now are built different and and they sound different. The noise kind of comes when I was managing. I just noticed noise goes above the field, and at Shea it came down to the field. So you felt it in your feet, you felt it in your legs. If Piazza hit a home run, you know that place is on wheels. You know mm-hmm. the stadium can move around. And it, it felt like those wheels might have come off the tracks a couple times when Mike would hit a big homer. And, you know, there, there's I can't think of another stadium that's like that, that the noise came down and you and you felt it inside your your chest. Robin mentioned Mike Piazza. He's on the list of invitees. And I don't know about you, but August 27 is circled in Sharpie on my calendar now. So. The other big item for the podcast today, let's get to it. We promised you a look at best Met starting pitchers of all time. And it's funny how quickly you compare this list down to three. Seaver, DeGrom, and Gooden. 
You can argue about the batting order, but Seaver was a first ballot Hall of Famer. We'll have much more on him in a couple minutes. His Mets ERA, 2.57. And while DeGrom's right now is 2.50, Seaver's pitched three times as many innings. So on longevity alone, let alone a World Series title and Cooperstown credentials, I'm fine with Seaver as your standalone alpha. Jake is your beta, is okay with me. Doc is the gamma in those Greek alphabet of aces. You could flip-flop those if you want. But who's the fourth face on this Mount Rushmore? Whose face are you carving on the side of a South Dakota mountain? R.A. Dickey won a Cy Young Award. Has an amazing backstory. Career Mets ERA of 295. He's the only other starter with 200 innings and a sub-3 ERA besides DeGrom and Seaver. John Matlack just misses at 303. He's got a career Mets record of 82 and 81. Jerry Kuzman, 3.09. Doc, by the way, was 3.10 as a Met. And Doc, because of the strikeouts and charisma and association with 86, he's a notch above those others as a fourth face. But um, I don't know. Who's, who's your guy? Darling, Santana, Ojeda, Cone, Saberhagen, El Cid, Viola, uh, Syndergaard, Al Leiter. I mean, Matt Harvey had the, the flash of brilliance. Nolan Ryan as a Met was 29 and 38, has the 45th best Met CRA among qualifying starters behind Kevin Apier, among others. We can bat it around all you like. It'll take a whole separate podcast. But since I've got Howie Rose in the on-deck circle here ready for his interview, uh, just for the record, I'm going with Kuzman after Doc, recent Mets Hall of Fame inductee. So we've anointed Seaver as the first face on the sculpture. Uh, and then we bring it back to the magic of 69, of which he was the touchstone. Tom Verducci wrote a fantastic piece about those 69 Mets for Sports Illustrated several years ago. And I ran down that article so I could walk through it with the resident Mets expert regarding that era of Mets baseball, the one and only Howie Rose. Just as a preface, here's Verducci's reminder about Seaver and that 69 season. He says the numbers speak to the passage of time. He was 25-7 and with a 2.21 ERA. As the young Mets ran down the more seasoned Cubs in the NL East, Seaver went 10-0 and with a 1.34 ERA his last 11 starts. He was nearly perfect in six September turns. No home runs, no stolen bases allowed, no losses, and no relievers. No better testament to his will exists than this. Seaver pitched the ninth inning 18 times and never surrendered a run or even an extra base hit that year. Virgil Trucks, by the way, the only other starting pitcher ever to do that. There's a lot more, but let's jump in with our guest now. Let's bring him into the mix. All right, so Howie, as, as I continue along here reading through Verducci's masterpiece, this is a passage I thought you'd like. It says he had the leg strength of a running back, the balance of a ballet dancer, and the will of a marathoner. The hands over the head, the drop and dive of the lower body with legs, hips, and glutes firing like cannons, the back knee hitting the ground hard enough to need a pad there under his uniform pants, the arm bursting through last, perfection on repeat. Watching Seaver uncoil was like standing next to the train tracks as a 200-ton diesel roared by, the speed and power leaving a wake of awe. Is that kind of how it felt when you were a kid watching it? <laughs> well, I don't know that I could have processed it quite that way. And that is typically brilliant prose from a brilliant writer, Tom Verducci. I would add one thing, though. He had the brain of a scientist. And I think that was the catalytic force in everything else coming together to the level 
of success that he enjoyed because he was, to use a cliche, more so the thinking man's pitcher, perhaps, uh, than anyone who ever performed that role. And I think when you throw that into the blender, you know, what comes out is the complete Tom Seaver. And he continues kind of in that vein. Verducci says Seaver had power and command in elite proportions. He said in 1969 that he threw seven pitches, three types of fastballs. It sinks, sails, or runs in, he said. Two curveballs, one slow, one fast, a changeup and a slider, all behaved as well as children on Christmas Eve. He once said if he threw 125 pitches in a game, all but a handful ended precisely where he intended. So good was Seaver that Reggie Jackson once said of him, blind men come to the park just to hear him pitch. Are we seeing a little bit of that with modern-day Jacob deGrom, is my question for you. Well, we were seeing snippets of it, but of course they come in shorter samples now because pitchers are not trained to work in any given game to the length that Tom Seaver and his contemporaries and those who came before him did. And I think that's a shame, personally. But that's a whole other topic for a whole other time. I think that, you know, Tom was the essence of what pitching was supposed to be. And uh, because of the fact that he was able to take that broad palette that he had and employ it pitch by pitch, knowing that he was saving a particular color or a particular shade for a point later in the game when he might need it, if anything, for other than the element of surprise, you know, again, he transcends what most other pitchers have been because of that ability. And I don't know that I recognize that as a teenager necessarily because I couldn't think the game the way we can think it as we see it more and, you know, in later years with more of a background. But, yeah, all of that rings true. I mean, he, he was just... Look, I'm not objective about Tom, okay? You know, Josh, I, you know that. Um, he was my idol, and I, and I got to work with him as a colleague and, and become what I would consider a friend, and all of that is somewhat surreal in the rearview mirror. But, you know, I would just check every one of these boxes that, that Tom Verducci creates or anybody else creates when it comes to Tom. He was the closest thing to perfection other than Sandy Koufax, perhaps, that I've ever seen on a pitcher's mount. Wow. So, we're again, if you're just kind of figuring out what we're doing here, this is Tom on Tom, Verducci on Seaver, with a kind of bonus track from Howie. So the, the backstory that Verducci comes up with here, I think he summarizes it very well. He says, Seaver was the happiest accident that ever happened to the Mets. Growing up in Fresno, he didn't make his high school baseball team till his senior year. He went to Fresno City College, where he was a good pitcher, but nothing special, then transferred to USC, where he blossomed. In 1966, the Braves gave him a $51,500 contract, but the commissioner nullified the deal on a technicality. College players weren't eligible to sign once their season had started, and the Trojans had played two exhibition games. So the commissioner announced a lottery for Seaver. Any team willing to meet that $51,500 bonus price could enter. Only three teams did, the Phillies, Indians, and Mets. So... How crazy is that that only three teams wanted in and the Mets didn't have a one in 20 chance, they had a one in three chance and they nailed it. 
Yeah. You know, when you look back on it, even though I've seen a scouting report or two that listed him as a major league prospect, and I, I don't know if that was a Met scouting report necessarily or not. You know, you see so much stuff on the Internet now, particularly with social media. I actually saw that graphically just within the last, I don't know, week, 10 days. And it really does call into question what the other 26 teams were thinking and whether or not, uh, actually it wasn't 26 at that point, there were what, 20 teams and the uh, Braves obviously were eliminated. So you had three, so 16 other teams, I guess. And I, I, you have to wonder what they were thinking and whether that $50,000 price tag might have been considered prohibitive back then. But you know, that's chump change considering what the Mets ended up getting for it. Right. So, yeah, we circle April 3, 1966 is kind of ground zero for all this. And, uh, yeah, Verducci says the Mets finally had won something. They literally hit the lottery. (laughs) (laughs) And a year later, Seaver was in the big leagues. He won 16 games in the Rookie of the Year, then another 16 and 68, when ninth place New York had a very modest 73 and 89 record, the best in club history. They won in 69 in such improbable ways, they embarrassed magicians. They took both ends of a doubleheader, one nothing, with each run driven in by a pitcher. They struck out 19 times and made four errors in one. They won when Hodges put the hit and run on with the bases loaded. The runner at third, Cleon Jones, sprinted so hard that the batter, Jerry Grody, had to check his swing for fear of maiming his teammate. He hit a bloop over the head of a first baseman for a three-run double. Of course. So... Is that 69 magic unspooled? And I know you weren't an adult yet. You're not fully formed, but... I'm glad I wasn't because it was easier to appreciate as a teenager. Yeah, that's kind of my question is that, I mean, how quickly did did you come to grips with like, wow, we're getting every break here? You know, I don't know if it's a function of my personality, which let's just say is not necessarily Pollyannish or... um, (laughs) You know, just shall we say youthful naivety or fear? Or, I mean, there are a whole lot of different things that you look back on and say, maybe I was feeling it that way. But I'm telling you, Josh, and this is the God's honest truth, with every improbable break that they got, and you just listed a whole bunch of them, I never really believed it was going to happen until that ball nestled in Cleon Jones's glove for the final out of the World Series. It just seemed so far-fetched. It seemed so literally unbelievable that a team with the history the Mets had going back to 1962 could win the World Series, even though every indication was that it was somehow faded. But I just, I wasn't buying, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it until it actually happened. And I'm not sure I believed it then. And I've just nurtured it and appreciated it every day since. And if you'll indulge me a minute, I'll I'll tell you a little personal story of how much it meant and what I learned from that, because I sort of made it a theme for Mets Extra when I started that job in 1987. Do I have a quick minute here? Please, go. Take the floor. Okay, good. Um, Look, I I didn't realize it until 1970, when I was now all of a season 16 years old, (laughs) that I, I was going to approach every game the Mets played as a fan in 1970 as a referendum on their world championship because I felt, and maybe it came from growing up in a Yankee home because my dad was such a huge Yankee fan, and I envisioned the Mets after winning the World Series in 1969 becoming the new Yankees. I mean, it was the whole culture in the late 60s was such that the you had 
you know, the establishment, right? The older guard. And you had the Pepsi generation, the new breed, you know? And, um, and so I just envisioned that, that my generation was going to look at the Mets as being the new Yankees because they'd won the World Series in 69. So to me, as a fan, I kind of felt, well, they need to win again in 70 and again in 71, I suppose. But I, I, so every, every game in 70, to me as a fan, was life and death. And I'll never forget that when they, and I think it was Art Shamsky grounded out, for the final out of the game in Pittsburgh on the last weekend of the season, the season spilled over a few days into the next week, but they were eliminated on a Sunday afternoon in Pittsburgh. And I'm, I'm at once ashamed and amazed to admit this, but at the age of 16, when that final out was made and there were the pirates celebrating on the field at three river stadium and Bob Murphy, who was doing the TV call at the time said, and there's the scene you saw so many times last year at Shea stadium. I broke down and cried like a baby. I mean, all of that pressure that I put on myself for some dopey reason for the Mets to repeat in 1970 just came pouring out like Niagara Falls. I couldn't believe it. And I realized in subsequent years how stupid that was and how eternal any championship is. Well, and, you know, and to, to tie it back into what Tom is writing, too, you know, the other thing I think that, that my guess is he'll always have this, uh, you know, image not of older Tom Seaver, but of that all-American mid-20s Tom Seaver in, in a part of your mind. And, and Tom Verducci writes about that. Uh, he says a, re- a reporter asked Seaver if he ever had trouble with anyone because of this all-American image, and he replied, yes, Ralph Houck the Yankees manager, and Seaver explained that in 67, he had stopped at Toot Shores, the famous sports hangout after the banquet where he got Rookie of the Year award. It was 1.30 in the morning when Houck saw him there. You'll never be a big league pitcher keeping hours like this, Houck snarled. If you had 25 players like me, Seaver snapped back, you wouldn't finish 10th. So, oh, baby. What an I've end. never heard that. No, I love that. So, I mean, I, I want to ask you, because for me, someone who really didn't know Tom Seaver, I always just kind of figured, yeah, you know, the apple-cheeked all-American boy, uh, you know, married Nancy, it's the perfect marriage, well, you know, all of it. Uh, but there was an edge there to him, wasn't there? Well, I, I don't know how to define edge in that context. I mean, Tom was a very strong-willed, strong-minded person. He did know and acknowledge that image. In fact, I can remember reading where he was once asked, and this is pretty early, this might have even been his rookie year, um, because everybody was portraying him, as you just illustrated, as the, quote, all-American boy, such as it was defined back in 1967, 68, whenever it was. And he was asked, are you the all-American boy? And Tom says, well, I drink beer and I swear. So, yeah, I guess I'm the all-American boy. And I don't think that that was a window into a more complicated persona that we got to know even publicly a little bit later on. But yeah, I mean, you know, he was very aware of the the status that he would achieve and what that meant uh, to people. And there were times when Tom perhaps publicly embraced it a little less than at others, when he might have been a little more brusque and less apt to indulge interview requests than he would be at other times when he can be perfectly engaging. Um, But then that's kind of like the rest of us, right? And I I don't know that you can flip a switch and be on all of the time. Tom clearly did not. Tom did not suffer fools. And that's what made me so 
apprehensive at first when I started doing games with him. We were never full-time partners. We did a handful of games together for a number of years in each succeeding season. And man, those first couple, I just, I knew, boy, I'd better, I'd better have my A game today or else, you know, Seaver is not going to like it. And, uh, and so in, in that sense, he made me better the way he made other teammates better. And that was only by intimidation that, that I created. He didn't do anything to intimidate me other than the fact that his name was George Thomas Seaver. Right. But I knew stepping into the booth with him, I'd better be ready and I'd better know what I'm talking about because, again, Tom will not suffer fools gladly. <laughs> Let me leave you with this one, Howie, and it, it's because it always ties, ties back to Seinfeld. I, I realize this, but uh, you know, in the mid '90s, it was Newman coming in and accosting Keith with, with the phrase "June Fourteenth, nineteen eighty-seven, Mets, Phillies." And I know for you, uh, I, I think where I go is July 9th, nineteen sixty-nine, Mets. Yeah. Cubs, in your book, you write so beautifully about the Jimmy Qualls game, and obviously Verducci wanted to weigh on in on this as well, educating people about how, and I'll go back to Verducci here, a crowd of 59,083 squeezed into the joint, including 7,056 midget Mets, part of the team's youth fan club. In Wallkill, New York, town administrators were fighting the idea of this festival called Woodstock that day. And at Cape Kennedy in Florida, Apollo 11 sat one week from its launch. But on this night, Shea Stadium shook with enough noise and meaning as to be the center of the universe. It's all available in your book, which I hope people already have or will now go buy. But can you give me a little, I don't know, 90-second summary of July 9th, 1969 for you? Well, I'm not sure I can condense it to 90 seconds, but I'll try. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my friend and I got the last two unreserved seats in the ballpark because our baseball coach, we were playing in a baseball summer league that year, kept us in the sliding pits seemingly forever after a game until we got the art of sliding down feet first sliding pits. Imagine that. But anyway, we didn't have tickets to the game. We were going to do what we always did and buy general admission. When we got to that ballpark, oh my God, they sold us two tickets that were stamped standing room with the expectation that we'd have to find a place to stand. Um, Somehow we went upstairs and found two vacant seats. I don't know how, but we sat there completely enthralled by what was happening in front of us because this was the biggest game that the Mets had played in their history, bigger than the one that came just the day before, which had been the biggest game in their history, their first pennant race series ever. And a Seaver was mowing the Cubs down one by one. We got into the middle innings and we're thinking, are we watching something for the ages here? (laughs) And I'm telling you, when Randy Hundley let off the ninth inning, trying to bunt his way on, And Seaver calmly and coolly fielded the bunt and fired. I mean, he threw a BB to first base to get Randy Hundley for the first out. Uh, My friend Robert Joseph and I looked at each other, and without saying it, we felt, well, that's it. They can't hit their way on. They can't bunt their way on. He's going to do it. And wouldn't you know it, the next batter was Jimmy Qualls, and it was a kick to the solar plexus because forget the selfish part of it thinking, wow, we're in on a perfect game. We can sell our scorecard somewhere down the line for thousands and thousands of dollars. Our mind wasn't there. It was just on the frustration of what had transpired. But that was the night that I went home from Shea Stadium for the very, very, very first time thinking, oh, my goodness, they just might be good enough 
to, if not stay in this thing, maybe maybe win it. It was the first time in, in since 1962 that I allowed my mind to think, can the Mets actually win a pennant, win a World Series? And that was the night that crystallized it. Awesome catching up with Howie, who's back on radio, of course, this year after his health issues last year. Final couple items are tossed your way like a Valentine's Day bouquet after this. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based channel championship team we do have some sad news from this past week gerald williams passed away his time as a met in the mid aughts uh, not nearly as long as his time in the bronx uh, I mean, obviously people more associate him as a yankee came up under the eye of buck showalter gerald and bernie williams were a terrific combo that i saw play at columbus back when i was announcing games in the minors with Rochester. I once saw Gerald Williams hit a three-run homer and a grand slam in the same inning of a game that had been a no-hitter into the eighth. I've never seen that one before. Rochester and Columbus were nothing-nothing into the bottom of the eighth, and the Clippers scored 13 times in the bottom of the eighth inning. Gerald Ice Williams, only 55 when he passed last week. He was one of 13 kids growing up in Tampa, one of the things I remember from his backstory. Gentle soul, good guy, gone way too soon. From the labor front, the universal DH is going to be a thing going forward now. I know we'll all remember Bartolo's home run in San Diego like we remember our first kiss. Apologies to those of you who have failed to have that yet. And yes, there were obviously some other magical Mets moments provided by pitchers at the plate. From Daesung Koo uh, to Mike Hampton making a run at hitting 300 to Grom doing the same thing last year. Jacob had more hits than earned runs allowed last year. And he actually did hit 364. The misty watercolor memories are to be preserved for sure. But let's also remember Glendon Rush hit 058 as a Mets. He struck out half the time. Mark Clark hit 045, struck out half the time. Personally, I like this new direction for baseball, getting both leagues on the same page finally. And we wonder out loud who will be the Mets DH in 22. At this point, it's pretty much TBA. I know some of you say TBD. I always say TBA. But uh, I, I will say this. If you look at the track record of the manager, even when Buck Showalter had defensively deficient players like Danny Tartable and Nelson Cruz, he didn't only DH them. Uh, Vladimir Guerrero, uh, Mark Trumbo, guys like that with the Orioles, even they got to play the field a little bit. So just throwing that out there that uh, as maybe a rotating cast of players fills this spot, And, of course, Steve Cohen's checkbook is still flipped open. There could be more hitters being added once we finally get going again. 
As for the hitters who helped us today, those given a spot in the Mets in the Morning house band, on keyboards, give it up for Shane Halter. Slapping the bass is Greg Jeffries. We salute our horn player, J.C. Martin, of that 69 Mets team. And on drums, Kirk Neuenheis. This is Josh Lewis. Appreciate you listening. We'll be back again in a week, hopefully with some better labor news as well. Take care. Take it easy. Let's go Mets. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.